consider buying your processed oboe and bassoon cane from those friendly folks over at Barton Cane. Processed with care and precision for your everyday reed-making needs. Take the pain and injury out of reed-making by letting Barton Cane do the hard, repetitive, boring stuff. Free up time for practicing happy hours, hikes, baking, and spending time with friends and family. Barton Cane, here for you. Visit www.bartoncane.com. Ugly Duckling Oboes is dedicated to the development of young oboe players. They provide quality handmade oboe reeds, private lessons, and high-quality oboe sales, rentals, and consignments. The oboes that they rent are conservatory mechanism oboes that include the left-hand F key and low B-flat key. All are maintained by oboe-specific technicians. In-person lessons are available as well as virtual lessons for students who live outside the geographic area or have transportation and scheduling challenges. They also offer online college audition coaching for high school juniors and seniors who plan to audition to be music majors. Visit UglyDucklingOboes.com for more details on how you can set up yourself for success and sign up for their newsletter. That's UglyDucklingOboes.com. Hi, I'm Galit Kaunitz. And I'm Jackie Wilson. And you're listening to Double Read Dish, a podcast for oboists, bassoonists, and the people who love them. Going long time no see. <laughs> it kind of feels like that. <laughs> I know it hasn't, but it feels like it. <laughs> so people were really excited about the dish topic. So I say we just kind of dive in. And the enthusiasm for this topic to me kind of shows the necessity of talking about it. And you and I had kind of the idea to talk about burnout and feelings of, you know, frustration. And to be honest, like we are very fine to get into with our guests, right? We're very fine to lead our guests to ask (laughs) other people about their vulnerabilities. And, you know, we kind of pride ourselves on creating this show where like we're putting that stuff out into the open. But if at least I'll speak for myself, me being honest, one, we want the show to be a positive thing. And so we try to really prioritize that, but also like it's very vulnerable making. And mm-hmm. so it was just interesting to me that when we said this was going to be a dish topic and ask people, our listeners to contribute, that people were immediately like very excited about having honest conversations about this topic and we'll make sure to get into their responses. But I mean, let's just start by talking about, um, you know, checking in with you and kind of how this, your thoughts on this topic. I'll tell you just to be a hundred percent honest and vulnerable. This is the most burnt out I have ever been Mm -hmm. in my life. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I just, this COVID and then coming back to in-person work after COVID. It is the most rundown and burnt out I think I've ever felt. Right. And uh, I don't really know what to do about it. You know, I took, I took a week off 
to go on a vacation to visit family. And then I came back and I immediately have to jump into these rehearsals and concerts. Mm-hmm. And I was just talking to my wife last night and I was like, I don't even know if I would feel better taking the whole summer off, you know, like, I, I don't even know how much time I would require to not feel this depleted. Well, and it's hard because we had all that time at home. So we got out of practice of, you know, working in the same way, attending rehearsals, go, go, going. But at the same time, the pandemic was definitely not like fortifying or recharging. Mm -mm. And so it's like, we're out of practice with the stuff that takes all this energy, but we didn't have any rejuvenation. And I don't know about you, but my attention span is like the length of a mouse blinking. Like (laughs) sitting through a two and a half hour rehearsal right now, I'm like scratching at the walls trying to get out of my chair, right? which feels very ungrateful to say, because I'm happy to have the work and I'm lucky to have the work and it's really great music and I am grateful for it. But at the same time, I'm like shifting in my seat, like twitching, trying to get, get to the end of the rehearsal. Yeah. If I'm being honest, the thing you just touched on is one of the hardest things for me to deal with, which is knowing that there's more supply than demand in our field, that I'm Mm -hmm. so lucky to have a job. As I was thinking about this, I was like, you know, how, how does burnout manifest itself in my life? And one of the things I came to was like, when I have so much music on my shelf that my practicing is just like, got to get to this, 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 and feeling like I didn't even get to every piece in my practice time. And then I was like, kind of slapped my own hand, like Jackie, that's such a entitled perspective of like, oh my God, I'm giving too many performances. I have too much rep. And it's like, I feel like I can't feel tired because tired is the opposite of grateful. Like I Mm -hmm. I feel like my mind has kind of hardwired those two things together that Mm -hmm. to acknowledge that I need a rest is the same as being ungrateful. You know, another thing I can't really separate burnout from my introversion. And Mm -hmm. I know that that experience is unique to to me. (laughs) Maybe people can relate. Maybe other people can't relate, but like, I get stressed out when my days are totally full. So like, I'm not that person who can like work a full-time hire a job and do a bunch of regional orchestras because I feel like I work all day and then I eat dinner and then I go back to work and I work till 10 PM. And if I don't have days like a weekend or in summer, completely open days. Mm -hmm. And that can make me feel like, I guess, kind of like scarcity panic of, Mm time off. Mm -hmm. But then at the same time, like part of why having this conversation, I wouldn't say I was reluctant to do, but just kind of like why I'm not super open about these feelings a lot of times is because I have the scarcity mindset of like, if I talk about this, or if I set boundaries, or if I say no thanks to something, people are going to be like, oh, don't call Jackie. She doesn't want that mm-hmm. opportunity, that thing, that this, that, that. So it's kind of like you feel like you can never say, oh, uh, oh, thanks. I'm full. Um, because then what if I end up starving because nothing ever gets put on my plate again? Yeah. And you feel like you can't, you don't have the right to just say like, oh, thanks. I'm full. This, this is yeah, enough I, for me for now. You feel like you have to go a hundred miles per hour for the rest of your career. Right. 
part of it too is I think the mentor aspect of teaching Mm. has been a very heavy burden through COVID and then coming out of COVID. I mean, I love my students with every cell in my body Mm -hmm. and I am more than happy to do that, but it feels like it came at at more of a cost to my emotional well-being than it usually does. Right. Well, because I think us as we're music teachers are different from like other types of teachers, because often our students do have an emotional connection to us. And Mm -hmm. if something say happens in their even personal lives, a musical, a lot of times it's us that they want to process with. Yeah. And I'm, I'm so honored and happy to be that person. But I don't know, it just feels like the things that everybody was dealing with over the last three years have been a lot heavier. Right. And so if you're the receptacle who's helping people Mm -hmm. process and you have a studio of over a dozen people, you know, you're, you're dealing with a lot of heavy. Yeah. So I don't know. What do you, how do you think, what, what are your strategies for dealing with burnout? One, I would like us to talk about strategies Two, I would like for you and I to also acknowledge like right now we are both going, Ooh, this dish is too sad. People, this is going to bum people out and we need to put a silver <laughs> lining on it somehow, you know, like that's just so a part of like, as musicians, we're conditioned that we can't like speak Ooh. our weaknesses. True. And um, so we are going to go to the silver lining, but I do want to say like, it's okay that we're just kind of speaking these truths. Yeah. Like, yeah. Philip Ewell, I talk about his work all the time, but one thing he talks about, it's not related to burnout, but he talks about the the problem with being solutionist and that when you're dealing with a problem, a lot of times we just go like, how do we solve it? How do we solve it? And that can be helpful, but sometimes it can also skip the step of analyzing what is causing the problem in the first place. And it can cause us to engage in action before we really understand a problem comprehensively. But yeah, his work encourages the list, the reader to sit in analytical discomfort for a while to just kind of kind of learn what they can from the matter at hand before immediately jumping to solutions. That is so valid. And I'm so glad that you said that because I immediately, I was like, this is getting real heavy. Let's lighten it up. (laughs) It's double read dish. We giggle. (laughs) No, we're human. We're all just human. Yeah. Let's giggle uh, about our sad tiredness for a second. We're feeling burnt out. Da 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 da. No. Um, so yeah, what what strategies have you tried? Even if they weren't super successful, what are kind of some things that you look to? Yeah, I'm not sure I try anything that's all that successful or healthy. I do love an avoidance nap. <laughs> that works, <laughs> or doesn't? <laughs> if I get overwhelmed, sometimes I just go to sleep. Yeah. I don't know. I think this is part of the problem is that I don't really have coping strategies. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I just, I just kind of try to muscle through it and then move on to the next thing, which maybe is why I'm feeling like this in the first place. It could be. (laughs) So maybe trying different coping strategies could be. And not just going to full system shut down immediately. Yeah, not just muscling through. <laughs> <laughs> oh, 
You know, one thing that has helped, I guess I, two things that have kind of helped me lately, I have started saying no, like I've got a lot of plates spinning right now. And over the summer, I've had a couple of people approach me with some new things to contribute on. And I have said no a couple times. Good for you. Was completely racked with fear while saying it. I'll be completely honest, was just like, oh God, this is going to get not only this person will never approach me with an opportunity again, but it will get a complete eye roll. Oh, Jackie's so busy type thing. Like I was very nervous to say no, Mm -hmm. Um, but I have started just kind of like declining certain things if I really feel there's no space. Um, I also instituted a rule that every year I take two straight weeks off from the bassoon. I wanted to try, try to find two two-week sessions. I was not able to do that, but August 1st through 14th, I will not be touching the bassoon. And I'm looking forward to that and uh, hoping that will, you know, be rejuvenating and help me reconnect with the parts of myself that are not a musician slash bassoonist. Do you count read making in that? Um, I, it, that's not my boundary. Like I can work on reads, but it's just basically practicing and playing and gigs. I just basically want a chance to miss it. Mm. If I go a whole year without taking that time off, practice can start to feel like a chore. By the time I've taken two weeks off from my instrument, I'm pretty ready to play at the end of that. And also when I'm feeling overwhelmed going, there is a break coming up. This does not last forever. Get to August 1st and there is a break and just kind of like knowing this is coming up. That's a good idea. I think I'm going to try taking two weeks off in August because I think I can do it. You can do it at the same time as me, maybe. And we could (gasps) do it together. That's the best kind of accountability. Yes. Break accountability. Maybe we should do it as a podcast thing of like, (sighs) tell us when you're taking your break. Well, we asked our listeners for their advice and thoughts on this. Like we said, people are really excited to talk about this. Why don't you share some of our uh, gems from our correspondence with our listeners? I loved this comment. Without going into too much detail, I took two weeks off from playing after classes ended and went on long hikes almost every day to remind myself that the trees, rivers, and lakes don't care about how my reads are doing or whether I'm working on the right projects. This year was the most severe and longest continuous streak of burnout I've experienced so far. Thank you for addressing this topic. Openness is so helpful and appreciated. We had another listener say... Let's normalize being open about musical and creative burnout. Many of us have spouses, children, aging parents, jobs, houses, and bills, yet we are required to travel, practice, perform, learn, and teach as if it's the only thing we do. Preach. If it is, and you're great at balancing all you have, terrific, but some of us truly burn out and suffer health problems. Making it okay to take a break, admit you're overwhelmed, and take time for rest is important. This year was the worst for me ever, too, because I refused to think that I'm, quote, washed up because I recognized that I needed a change and a break. I could not agree more. Um, Here's another great comment. Love this. A burnout tip. It can take a really long time to recover. For someone who is burned out, having patience and compassion for yourself is key. But the one thing I had wished I knew beforehand is that you can't recover from burnout in a week off. I pushed way beyond my means for way too many years under the mentality of when this is done, I'll take a break. By break, I was envisioning a week off, even a summer off, but it's literally taking years to recover and still going. I'll never do that 
again, not worth it. Health is the number one priority. Without it, we can't do anything anyway. Well, and I think what this listener is pointing to is that this builds on itself and that if you Mm -hmm. keep saying, oh, tomorrow, 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 or not dealing with it, it can have a really cumulative effect. And so it is okay to set up boundaries and listen to what your body and mind and emotions are telling you you need and to ask for it and to take it. And it's really nice to know that we're not alone. You are not alone. We are not alone. And expressing feelings of fatigue or burnout or even frustration does not mean that you're ungrateful and hate what you do. Chemical City Double Reads is a full-service double read shop specializing in the sale of instruments, cane, accessories, and sheet music. Double Read Dish listeners can enjoy free shipping with code DRDISH. Visit them in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, or online at www.chemicalcityreads.com. Hey, oboists! Have you ever found it difficult to sort out when and how to find a new oboe or English horn? Oboe Chicago streamlines the process, providing personal and professional consultation and a large selection of lovely instruments. The process feels comfortable and thorough. Selection includes Effleurie of Paris, Howarth of London, Covey Oboes, and Fox products. For a current listing of Oboe Chicago's selection, please visit www.oboechicago.com. For a credit of $100 towards shipping, mention Double Read Dish when you call or email Shauna. That's oboechicago.com. We are so delighted to welcome Dr. Andrew W. Parker, Assistant Professor of Oboe at the Greenwood School of Music at Oklahoma State University. Welcome. Hi, thank you so much for having me. We always start the same way. We want to know how you came to the oboe. How did you get started playing this wacky instrument? All right. So um, I'll give you the quick story. I started on piano when I was younger, six, seven, somewhere in there. Um, I Music's kind of skipped a generation, skipped my parents' generation. I come from a musical family. My uh dad's father was actually an opera singer he sang opera on the radio when that was a thing like he would go and the opera singers would sing on the radio um and his wife was a pianist and she actually was the one who kind of introduced me to the piano my dad's grandmother um because i would go over there and i would slap on the piano and i loved the sounds and and she would kind of teach me little things and then at some point she said to my parents you should get him piano lessons. He seems to like this. He seems to be good at it. And that's kind of where music started. Um, Also, my mom's side of the family, um, her father, um, his family or his heritage, they're um, uh, from, they were vaudeville musicians. Um, They immigrated from Europe. um, And um, I think his family was from Israel, I believe. And um, his Early on, they immigrated here and his parents were singers and his sister was a singer and he played the violin and they played the vaudeville circuit all around the United States. And his thing was that he played the violin while did Russian step dancing. 
Um, and I actually have an article from Ripley's Believe It or Not where he was like speaking. the where they squat and one leg squat and they do the thing. Okay. Yeah, he played the violin. Yeah, but playing the violin, like playing the melodies, and he would dance to what he was playing. And wow. he even in when Ripley's Believe It or Not was just a newspaper article, like a newspaper thing. He was featured in that, and we have that. We have his feature. Um, my grandmother died about five years ago. And when we cleaned out her attic, we found his tap shoes. We have his violin and his costume. And we also found their gig book where they kept track of every performance at what theater, the dates and how much they got paid. And the amazing part is that because so many vaudeville theaters were in the Northeast and I'm from New York originally, I have now performed in many of the theaters that he performed in when oh he was a vaudeville musician. That is wild. Really amazing. Uh, my goal is to one day get one of those like curio cabinets that I can like display it in like a museum and have it in my living room. I thought you were going to say your goal is to one day play the oboe while doing the Russian squat kicking dance. That sounds um, disastrous. <laughs> <laughs> Very dangerous. It is bad. It's like oboe and marching band. Bad. <laughs> that sounds like a good way to lose a tonsil. Right? But um, so it came to oboe. This is a little strange. It's going to come out a little strange, but it, it was great. Um, my band director in elementary school uh, in New York, I'm from Long Island originally, uh, they actually started oboes in fourth grade. Band was fourth grade is when you started. Wow. And uh, they didn't, they were running out of oboes in the high school. Like the the band directors had a couple of years where like no one had continued or they hadn't started any oboes in elementary school. And they were like, listen, every band director in the elementary schools, I think we had five or six elementary schools in our district. They're like, you all need to start one oboe player. And then hopefully out of those six oboe players, at least one will keep playing into high school. So um, my band director knew that I played piano and knew that I was already kind of singing in the choir. And he was like, hey, so I would love to show you this instrument. And what he said to me is, you have oboe lips. You have the perfect kind of mouth to play the oboe. And I thought that was a little kind of a strange thing to say. I didn't understand what that meant. What I like, of course, later in life, I realized I have a very large lower lip. And so like it, it is going to create like my lip naturally covers the sound. So like without trying, I was, I, everyone always said to me whether or not I was playing the right notes <laughs> was they're like, you have such a beautiful sound. Like your sound is always so gorgeous. And I never really had to try. I never really thought about it. And, I, and a lot of it, I think, has been, I just have a very large lower lip that covers the reed. So it just makes for a more cushioned sound. That's a strange start, but it's also... a strange start. But it worked. I mean, it got me on the oboe. He, like, sent me home with an oboe that weekend. And I was like, okay, I guess I'll try it. And I did. And now uh, here we are. <laughs> So, um, disclosure, you and I have been friends for a very long time. In 2010, we met uh-huh. in the summer of 2010. <laughs> and um, when we met, you uh, had a very strong Long Island accent. We did, yes. And you would say, 
it's time to go to orchestra. It's time, so, everyone. It's it's orchestra time. It's orchestra time. So, can you please tell us about how you became a professional musician and started playing in orchestras? Absolutely, I'd be more than welcome. So, mine. <laughs> Um, I I had a very interesting road, actually. Um, lots of twists and turns, quitting the oboe at one point for a little while. Um, I actually never intended to go to school for oboe. I always intended to go to school for music. Um, I was pretty sure that I was going to go to school for voice and minor in piano and then get my master's in vocal coaching and then like be a vocal coach for Juilliard and the Met. Like that was the dream. Um, and I was a tenor, you know, like my voice is, is, my speaking voice is very high. My singing voice is very high. Like it it was, that was my thing. I was going to go do that and like be an oratorio tenor and like stuff. So, um, my senior year of high school, things started to change. Like my voice wasn't developing the way that I wanted it to. Um, and I was coming home from voice lessons with like a sore throat and like things weren't great. And I was having trouble trying to figure out what was happening with my voice teacher. We couldn't fix the problem. And um, I was like, you know what? I'm going to audition everywhere on oboe and voice. And then um, I had actually gone to a summer music festival in New York, the New York Summer School for the Arts, which is up in uh, Saratoga Springs, New York. And I worked with the second oboe player of the Philadelphia Orchestra while I was there, Jonathan Bloomfeld. And I really liked him and I loved his playing and he had amazing reads and like everything felt good. And so I went and I decided to audition at Temple University. And um, I got there and uh, I did my audition and I got home and a few weeks later I got accepted and I hadn't even finished my auditions yet. And I just said to my parents, I'm going there. I'm going to go to that school for oboe. I didn't fit, like I literally canceled my Juilliard audition, my Manhattan School of Music audition, like every school I hadn't auditioned at yet, just canceled them. I was like, nope, no, I'm doing that. I don't, still to this day, don't really even know what I was thinking at that point. I think I was just so frustrated with my voice. Mm. And it was like the first school that I heard back from. And I was just like, I'm, I'm doing that. I've already met the teacher. I know I'm going to be studying with him. I liked him. We're good to go. Thank you. Bye. Uh, let's graduate and do this. And, um, and I went to Temple for about three semesters. Um, and I just decided that it wasn't the right place for me. Um, and I went to a summer master class with Bert Lucarelli in the summer after my freshman year and completely fell in love with him like everyone does. Yeah, who doesn't? Who doesn't fall in love with that man? He is just incredible. And I love him so much. And Earth Angel. I was really like hating the oboe and not particularly happy. Um and I was like maybe I made the wrong decision. I was actually in conversations with the head of the opera program at Temple to change my major to voice. I was like, maybe I made a big mistake. And he was like, you made no mistake. You are doing exactly what you need to be doing. You just need the right guidance. Um, and he's like, if you ever want to come take lessons or study with me, just let me know. So I called him in like October, my sophomore year. And I was like, great. How can I study with you? 
So he basically just told me he needed oboe players at SUNY Purchase. And he's like, well, you were from New York, so you can have state tuition and and come to Purchase. And next thing I know, I was. I left Temple and ended up there. And it was 100% the right decision. It's something I always tell any student that I work with. Um, if you are unhappy, like you are in control of your life. Oh yeah. It is your decision, your schooling, you're paying for it, your decision. Don't let anyone else make you feel like it is out of your control. It is not. Um, and that really sort of taught me that I think it very early on that our lives are our own choices. And it's really important that we don't let other people make us feel as though we have no control over our life. Mm -hmm. Um, so I was, it was a great decision. He was an amazing teacher. Um, loved temp, uh, loved going to SUNY Purchase. Uh, you know, I was one of like two or three oboe players the whole time. I got to play principal on major symphonies and English horn on incredible pieces and a bunch of operas and I, experiences I probably would never have had if I had been anywhere else. Um, he then retired from teaching in my senior year and Steve Taylor came in mm -hmm. and I started studying with him and I had a great rapport with him and he was wonderful to work with. And I wanted to stay with him for a little bit longer. So I went, I ended up going to Yale for my master's and, uh, Oh honey, he, he's in an Ivy league. Oh, I'm one of those, one of those. <laughs> um, the catch. Of course, my mother, Joanne Paca, she just, every time she meets someone, this is my son, he went to Yale. <laughs> <laughs> so she's very proud of that. I'm very proud of that. It was incredible. Um, and then during my master's, I decided I really wanted to be a college professor. So I went to UT Austin for my doctorate and studied with Becky Henderson. She's a goddess on the oboe. Mm -hmm. And I think she taught me the most about read making. She really was just an incredible read maker and knew how to teach you how to be a teacher um, mm -hmm. and how to teach yourself. I think that was what I really loved about going there is I learned how to teach myself, which was incredible. Um, but I was pretty burnt out. I didn't take any time off in between degrees and I was really exhausted. I was actually at Round Top Music Festival and I got a phone call from my old boss when I was at Yale. I, my like study, my study work, my work study, work study. There we go. That's how you say it. Work study job was to be the assistant to the orchestra manager. And I had done orchestra manager work before in my undergrad. We had a conducting TA who graduated and no one else wanted to take over that we didn't really have a conducting program. Um, no grad students wanted to be the TA for the orchestra. And they said, well, you have an interest in arts admin, even though you're not a grad student, would you like to run the orchestra? So when I was a junior, I, I became the orchestra manager for my undergrad. And then I kept doing that work with the actual orchestra manager at Yale. And then my graduate assistantship at UT Austin was to run the concert halls. I had an academic assistantship where I ran the box office and all the stage crew for all the concert halls. Um, and so my old boss called me right before my dissertation year. And she said, hey, I got promoted to a new job and I need to replace myself. And you were the first person I thought of. Um, are you interested? 
And I was about to go into just being a part-time student to finish up my dissertation. So I interviewed and got the job and talked to UT Austin and they talked to Yale and we all agreed that I could still graduate on time and Yale would give me the time I needed to finish my degree and UT would give me the time to have a job. And I kind of transferred into arts admin. Um, and after I did my last recital, I kind of put my oboe down for like a year and a half. I, I would pull it out maybe once a month and play some scales and that's it. I, I really was like, I, I need to break from this. I'm exhausted. I kind of didn't know what direction I was going to go. I was only 25 um, since I hadn't taken any time off and I'm, I'm young for my year. I have a very late birthday and my birthday is right before Thanksgiving. So I just got into my grade when I was like in kindergarten. So I was very young when I finished and I was like, what school is going to hire a 25 year old to be a professor of oboe? You know, I'm going to have grad students older than me. And it was true. I, no one was interested in me yet. And, um, I just said, I, I need a break. So I put the oboe down for a little over a year mm-hmm. and did arts admin and really focused on being a good orchestra manager and uh, taking care of the students at Yale and making sure that they were getting a good experience. Um, and then suddenly I got called for a gig and I went, oh no, <laughs> I haven't played the oboe in a year. <laughs> I need to practice. Um, so I did and I practiced and then I went to Atlantic Music Festival that summer um, and played for a month straight and and it kind of reminded me how much I loved it. And that was when I started to really practice again. And I spent almost an entire year playing scales and long tones and basically not taking gigs, not teaching students. I said, I'm just going to do what I've never really had a chance to do, which is get my fundamentals under control. Mm. And I spent a whole year just learning the fundamentals again. And, uh, and then it kind of took off from there. I decided I needed to be somewhere where I could gig more and the Northeast is amazing, but saturated with incredible talented musicians. And there was no need for this orchestra manager who played Mm. it. Um, So I got a job at the Brevard Music Center as their artistic administrator. And being an alumni of that program, I was familiar with it. And and Western North Carolina is just beautiful. And there's tons of regional orchestras and lots of students who wanted lessons. And and I had an amazing experience working there. And my boss was the concertmaster of the Asheville Symphony. And he was very understanding of me wanting to go perform and teach any opportunity I got. He was like, yep, go, that's fine. Have have a good day. Let me know what I can do. And um, about two years in, I had turned, I was getting closer to 30. And, and I said to him, I think it's time that I start applying for teaching jobs again. Um, and in that period of time, living in North Carolina, I had won a principal oboe job with an orchestra. I had been appointed principal oboe of another regional orchestra and then I was second oboe of another regional orchestra and every time I turned around there was a position opening that I would either take an audition or they would appoint me because they needed someone right away and next thing I knew I had four or five orchestras that I was playing with regularly and um, it was amazing it was like the dream to have a full-time job where I had a salary and benefits but yet also had the ability to go play. And I taught adjunct at the local college at Brevard College. And 
it was it was amazing. But doing all that reminded me of how much I really wanted to be just doing oboe and teaching. So I started applying for teaching jobs and had a couple of interviews and actually a couple of different offers that I decided just weren't the right thing for me. And then Oklahoma State came along and it felt right. It just felt like the place I, like the next step. My mom has always said to me, when the right thing shows up, you will know it and it will happen at just the right time. And she's always been right. Something just felt like this was the right next step. So that's kind of how I got here. And it's such a testament to your work ethic and your personality, because if you are a person, like you just said, your mom always says, you know, the right opportunity will present itself at the right time. That means that you are a person who not only is open to that kind of change, but is the person who your former boss thinks to call when there's an opening, you know, like you, your, um, personality and, um, like work style is just so easy to, for people to relate to and get along with. And that's such a good thing in our field to, to have, those qualities where people are like, Ooh, I have this opening. Who do I want to work with? Andrew Parker, mm-hmm. you know, like that's such a huge part of it, I think. And it's such a testament to you. I just, I love, I love that I took a different path. Um, it is, it's introduced me to people I never would have met. Um, I think it makes me a better faculty member because I understand what it means to be a staff member. Right. Um, I, you know, I, for me, if I had stayed in orchestra management, that one of my biggest things was whenever I interviewed for any job I was applying for in arts admin, I always said, I really want to get rid of this administration versus musician. I don't understand what, 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 where did this come from? Why are we doing this to ourselves? So many administrators were musicians. We should be understood we should understand what is needed. And I've always said I wanted to be the person that can stand on the fence and have a foot on both sides. I think it's so important. And I feel the same way in academia that it's really important that we do not have staff versus faculty because it just creates a bad atmosphere. And and I really want um, there to be an understanding. And I, I think coming from the administrative background, I get what our administrators need, but I also get what we need as faculty and as musicians. And I try to find that balance as to where is the point, like if we have a situation, we're trying to find a solution, what kind of solution can we find that is going to be mutually beneficial for both parts and even if it means that not both parts are getting everything that they need, it is going to be a good balance. And I think that's where we come into problems is people don't want to budge. They want their thing. They need their thing. But if you have someone who knows how to stand in the middle and say, okay, I get it. I see both sides because I am both sides. How can I help find that balance? How can I stand on the balancing beam? And I like being that person. I don't think I ever would have... Um, become that person if it hadn't been for the different path I took. It also makes me really appreciate what I do. I 
am completely in love with my students. Mm -hmm. They are, I don't have any children myself. I, they are everything to me. I, you know, I, um, and I think it is because that way, because it took me a little bit longer to get here. Um, I didn't get out of school and immediately win a job. I didn't get out of school and, and I mean, I got out of school and quit the oboe, you know, like I put my oboe away and being, getting called for a gig, getting asked to do an interview like this. These are the things that I appreciate them so much more because it wasn't something that just fell in my lap and happened. Um, it is something I've really had to work for. And I really try to encourage any student that I work with that it's okay to take a different path. It's okay to find your own path and find who you are. It doesn't need to happen tomorrow. It doesn't need to happen even in five years from now. You know, it took me almost eight years after I graduated from my doctorate to, to accept my first full-time teaching job. Um, and I think it's, that's such an important thing that we let our students know, you know, there was definitely a period of time where I feel like there was musician shaming. You didn't go out and win an orchestra job. You must be a terrible musician that you yep. can't do that. And um, I don't think, I hope that that has diminished. Um, and I am doing everything I can to, to diminish that with my own students. Um, that it's important to just be you. And even if your path makes you leave music, that doesn't mean that you weren't talented or that you weren't a fantastic musician. It just means that your life took you in a, in a different way. It, it brought you somewhere else. And there's nothing wrong with that. But don't lose the music. You know, keep it in your life in some way, even if that is encouraging your kids to play music or um, playing in a community band or a community orchestra. Um, or just listening to your favorite piece of music once a week, you know, don't, you went into it because you loved it. Just because maybe it didn't become your career doesn't mean that you have to um, extract it from your life. It's important to keep that in your life. Yeah. Well, and I think it's such an important thing. Your story is, um, it's interesting and it's unique because um, we've had, of course, on the show, people who've taken all sorts of paths um but yours seems to be really autonomously chosen like you allowed yourself to both voice and oboe you elected to take time off you um considered what administration could add to your musical voice what your musical voice could add to your administration uh qualifications. And a lot of times we do come at it from a scarcity mindset of like, oh, I had to do these other things. Or you're right. Like, oh, if it doesn't happen by now, it means it's not going to, or I'm a failure and I can't take time. Um, but as Galit and I have said several times on the show, we are getting to the age where we're seeing people elect to leave the field because they never gave themselves permission to take time off, consider what they really want gauge burnout and those types of feelings. And basically what I hear you talking about is a unwillingness to invest in a scarcity mindset and believing that what the universe has for you will come to you. I, I, yes, 100%. Um, I think too many of us put a tremendous amount of pressure on ourselves. Um, and 
I will admit this is something that Becky Henderson taught me when I was in my doctorate. I was getting really burned out and I had a conversation with her. I said, I don't know how to balance my life. I have no idea what's going on. I feel like on a daily basis, I wake up and I'm completely lost as to where to start. And she was the one that said, well, let's sit down and figure it out. And she's the first person that said to me, you know, it's okay to take a day off every week. You know, you're allowed to have a day where you don't do music. Mm -hmm. It doesn't mean that you're a failure. It just means that you need a day to give your brain some time to relax. It was the first person that ever said that to me. That was like, you can't really function on a daily basis if you're not giving your brain the sleep, the food, and the time to recover. She's like, it's just like going to the gym. If you're a bodybuilder, you need to give your muscles time to, to recover. So you go and you do like, you know, upper body day, lower body day, take a day off. And that day off is the day for your muscles to build and to regain their strength. And then you start the process over again. She's like, we're just athletes. That's all we are. So we should train like athletes, which means giving yourself a day of rest. Mm-hmm. And um, I think that we, most of us don't allow ourselves to do that. And that it was something that I took very seriously. And I, I try to get my students to do the same thing. And I think that that's an important reason of, of why I've been able to think clearly about the path of my career. Cause on those days where I'm not playing and I'm not doing music, I can evaluate what's going on. How am I feeling right now? Am I feeling overwhelmed? Am I feeling stressed? Do I have enough reads? What performances are coming up? What do I need to do? What is my goal in a year from now, three years from now, 10 years from now? Am I setting myself up properly to be successful in those goals? Um, We do a thing, all of my students have a binder um, that I keep in my office that um, has all their music that they've played while they've been studying with me. And then the very first thing in there actually is the goals section. So every semester we set goals and then every year we set goals. And when they come in as a freshman, they set a goal for where they want to be in four years when they graduate. Um, And this is because I just, I feel like having small goals, medium-sized goals, and then long-term goals are the only way that we really truly progress. Mm -hmm. Um, And I try to do that for myself as much as possible, is set attainable goals and then those long-range goals, but make sure that those small attainable goals are designed to get me to that farther farther Mm -hmm. end. Um, and maybe it's because I'm type A <laughs> and I overthink things, but, um, it works for me. And I, I hope that sort of imparting that knowledge on students that I meet and my friends helps them a little bit, especially if they're feeling stressed or burned out or overwhelmed. I want them to know that it's okay to take a day. I'm taking, I'm going on a cruise next week from, with my mom for her 70th birthday and Ooh. my oboe is staying home. <laughs> And like, it's fantastic. <laughs> like, I, I love playing the oboe, but I, it's been, this was our first year post, post, you know, quote unquote, post COVID, our first full year with like concerts back to normal and mm-hmm. masks not being worn all the time and like everything back in person. I feel like there's been twice the amount of things because mm-hmm. everyone wanted to make up for the two years we couldn't do anything. It was um, rough. 
It was, it was a rough was, year. I am exhausted. Yeah. And like sitting on a boat in the Caribbean, you know, with a cocktail sounds like the best way to recover <laughs> from celebrating my mom's 70th birthday. You know, like this sounds amazing. <laughs> so um, I, I hope everyone goes and joins me on the, everyone come, come on a cruise with me. <laughs> Double oh, read cruise. Double <laughs> read cruise. Yeah. That's our next project. Double read dish cruise. That's right. Um, I have a, a question. Um, so you spoke really eloquently about how your arts admin experience informs who you are as a faculty member. Um, but I would be really interested in knowing how your vocal training and emphasis impacts who you are as a oboist. Um, how does that get brought into your artistic voice? Oh, a lot. My, I, I have had students that have told me, like, I feel like I just take voice lessons. With you. <laughs> we do a, I do a lot of singing in lessons, actually. Um, and because I started on piano, I learn all of my students' piano parts to whatever they're mm-hmm. playing so that I can play piano with them in lessons. It also makes them feel more comfortable when they finally get with their pianist for their jury or a recital. They've been hearing the piano part all semester. Mm-hmm. Um, and I discuss a lot, you know, in oboe, we do a lot of voicing, and a lot of tongue placement. And, and that is just vowel shape, which is the same as singing. Um, and I do find that I actually connect very, very well with students who also sang in high school or that still sing. Um, and, and they understand vocal technique or they uh, vocal language. Um, I definitely teach very vocally. I sing, I talk a lot about the spin of the sound, which I know I got from Luke Grelli because he always talked about singing through the phrase, blowing through the phrase, making sure the air is always spinning and circulating. Um, and so I, I use, I talk a lot about vowel shape on the inside of the mouth. Um, I talk a lot about, uh, air usage and how, like, if you were to sing something, you wouldn't stop your air in the middle of a, you know, a word, you know, just because the word has two syllables doesn't mean you stop the air in the middle. You know, I say, just speak a sentence. We do a lot of that. I say, I want you to put like words to this phrase and I want you to speak it to me. Um, and then I'm like, great, you didn't put any breaks in there. And you had an overarching phrase. You got to the middle of the sentence and your voice got higher. You got to the end of the sentence, your voice got lower. And I said, that's all you need to do. Music is just, it's just a language. A phrase is a sentence. Uh, you know, a breath in the middle is a comma. It's just, I said, why do you think of you? (laughs) We put commas in our music to represent a rest or uh, a breath it's a it's a moment of pause mm-hmm. like I, you, i've never thought about that before the visual comma comma yes as a breath if you put it in a sentence it's just a comma mm-hmm. i love it it's a moment of pause like you would do speaking a sentence and you'd see a comma you'd take a brief pause and then you'd keep going mm-hmm. that's a space for a breath Mm-hmm. I think I probably thought about that. I literally just came from performing the Poulenc Sonata. Like, at, I finished at 11.45. And <laughs> the second movement has tons of those little commas that you take a split-second break. And we were discussing those things, actually, this morning before we performed it. And um, so I really, it's 
I don't see how oboe and the voice are really all that different. Um, I mean, Bach always used to say like oboe is the most vocal of the instruments, which is why he constantly pairs it with soprano and tenor and baritone. And the cantatas are just filled with oboe. Um, it's so vocal. We don't have to breathe. We just, <laughs> we just go, we just play and it just happens. And I always tell my students, just drop your jaw, blow air and yeah. let it happen. Don't worry about it. Our instrument will do it for us. We're that, it's just like speaking. I, I just want you to feel like you're just having a conversation with me and, mm -hmm. um, and don't worry too much about it. I mm -hmm. speak, say something to me, say something, whether you even know what it is that you're saying, it's fine. Just say something mm -hmm. in your lesson. I want, I want you to feel as though you've communicated a sentence to me. Mm -hmm. um, and then communicate that with your audience allow them to to figure out what the story is that you're saying and what is the character and the um, there might not even you know brahms wasn't you know programmatic music but that doesn't mean there's no characters and that you can't put a voice to brahms mm -hmm. you can still go and play a brahms symphony and play that beautiful second movement solo in the first symphony and still tell a story and still sing it to your audience and have them go, I know exactly what that oboist is feeling right now because they sung a song to me. And I think that's something that is so important when it comes to the oboe. Oh, I love that. Do you have any favorite memories of past performances that you'd like to share with us? I have some funny ones and some good ones. Um, Give us all of them. I think, I think my favorite performance ever was not my best. It was, it, I was very happy with it. This is a sad story. I apologize. Um, so my dad passed away about seven years ago with pancreatic cancer. And I have always wanted to play Tombow to Cooperon because what oboe player doesn't, it's beautiful and amazing. I finally had the opportunity to play it um, the summer, actually, before I left New Haven uh, and before I left my job at Yale. I, for a couple of summers in a row, went to Atlantic Music Festival. It worked out in my work schedule. And um, my very last concert of the last year that I went was Tombo de Couperon. Excuse me. And I got to play principal. And... Um, it also happened to be a few months after we found my dad was diagnosed with cancer and it was the last concert that he saw me perform. And uh, he took a video of the first movement on his phone and I actually a couple of weeks ago was going through my Dropbox and found the video of him that he took of me playing the first movement. And it was just a very special concert. Um, cause my father was incredibly supportive of me as a musician and because I traveled so much, he didn't get to see me play a lot. And the fact that, um, you know, he was going through chemo and it was like his one weekend that he didn't have treatment and that he felt okay enough. And actually the day after he got really sick and my mom had to take him back home 
but um, like he was trying to hold on enough to see the concert. And that was just a very special concert for me to have him there. Oh, thank you for sharing that with us. Thank you for You're sharing. Right. I'm crying. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, unfortunately, um, that following February, he passed away. Oh, I'm so sorry. But um, but he got to see me play a piece I've always wanted to play. And it's the only time I've ever performed the principal of part in my entire career. Oh. And, uh, and he got to be there to see it, so... That was a very special concert. Um, I think funniest. <laughs> now we'll move to the other. One. <laughs> <laughs> a little levity. <laughs> uh, funniest concert that I think I've ever played. I was also I was a student. This wasn't really funny. It's kind of terrifying, but it's funny now. Um, I was at the Norfolk Cheer Music Festival, and we were playing. Um, they used to do, I think it was on Monday nights, they used to do these concerts in like a small room where an ensemble would play a piece and then there'd be a question answer session with the audience. And you would like talk about the piece, you would play a movement, they would listen, they would ask you questions. Um, and you would get all sorts of questions like, how would you, how can you rehearse something like that? Or like, how did you, how do you guys stay together? All sorts of interesting things. And they were a very informed audience up there, which was really amazing. They had really in-depth questions. Um, so about five minutes before we're about to we're playing the Francais first woodwind quintet, which is scary enough. And um, I could you say the word Francais and I, I, it's like Halloween. Yeah, it's, I know it's true. We love Francais here at OSU. I feel like we're, we're constantly playing Francais music and it's great. I love it. I love noodly things and so learning hard. so hard. <laughs> So um, I go to clip my read because it was just slightly flat and I clip my read and clipped off the very tip of my finger. No! And oh my God. <laughs> five minutes before we're supposed to play the first Francais woodwind quintet. No. How bad was it? Which finger? My half hole finger. No. Yeah, because of my pointer finger, I was like holding the read in place. I went to go cut and it like hit right the top of my uh, like fingernail and then sliced off that like little piece, right? Oh. But it still hit the reed. So the reed was <laughs> really good. But now I had this- That's my of- finger, but yeah, the reed's good. <laughs> so I like walk off stage and you know, this is, it's like a room, it's not like a stage. So I was like, ow. And <laughs> this like precious old lady is in the front row watching my finger bleed out into the floor. <laughs> And I like walk off and find a stage manager and I was like, so I have a problem. (laughs) And she was like, oh dear. (laughs) And like, she immediately grabs like a first aid kit and like we clean off my finger and she wraps it like in gauze and some tape. Tape. So like try to stop the bleeding. And, And then she goes, do you think you could still play? And I was like, um, you know, in like sweet little like 21-year-old me, not wanting to let anyone down, I was like, yeah, I'm sure I can figure it out. I'm fine. So I go back on stage and everyone's like, are you, are you okay? And I was like, yep, yep, everything's fine. Don't worry about it. Let's do a concert. 
and I play pulsing from pain. And I play this entire four movement craziness of circus music. (laughs) Plus a question and answer session, which went on for 45 minutes (laughs) on stage for like an hour and a half. And in the whole time, I like the gauze is getting like darker red and darker red and darker. Oh my God. And like someone had to bring me like more and I had like replace it. (laughs) I'm, I'm explaining to everyone like what happens so like not only are we doing this but now everyone knows that like i've been playing with like half a finger and <laughs> oh my god it was a it was a mess and uh somehow like it did get recorded and somehow you you couldn't tell i mean like i don't know how but like it didn't sound like there was anything wrong i think i just went into like adrenaline hyper mode yeah this is like the oboe equivalent of the the baby stuck under the car yeah, and you're like you mom... do it it doesn't yeah. <laughs> like you are on stage the concert's about to start we were the only thing happening on that concert like there was no alternative and the audience was there like i was going on whether i wanted to or not <laughs> i just had to and um, I think that is one of those moments of like, we really are insane as musicians. Like we are, we do the craziest things. Um, we are asked to do things that no one would ever ask anyone else to do. And it doesn't seem abnormal to us. We're just like, yep, yeah, sure. happy to play a concert with half a finger. <laughs> um, you know, it's, but that's what happens and the show must go on, but it also is what makes our lives different and exciting and unique. So there is different. There is a different. That's true. Wait, did you have to go to the the? Did you have to get stitches or something, or did no, you just like it, super it, glue it? it? It kind of like grew back. I mean, I still <laughs> like a lizard. Um, and I I still have like a little bit. Like you could see, I'm like it wasn't a ton, but you could see it like the tip of my finger. It's like slightly flat. Oh god! But, like it heals. I went to rehearsal the next morning. You're like, you know, all this gauze is really going to get in the way of my half hole. Could you, could you find me some super glue or something? Can we just like seal this sucker? (laughs) Just like tie it as tight as we could to try to make, like make it as close to my finger size as possible. Uh So it wouldn't like in, like infiltrate on the half hole. And act as a tiny tourniquet. Yeah, which is kind of what happened. No, I mean, luckily, like, the gauze was big enough that, like, I barely had to move my finger to get the half covered. It was, like, a slight movement, and my half all was covered. It was great. So it's a double read podcast. So, of course, we have to ask about reads. Our listeners love to hear about all the geeky stuff, shape and staples and whatnot. And, yeah, any read advice you have other than don't slice off your finger immediately before a concert. Yes, don't do that. Bad choice. Bad life choice. Um, so I, um, yes, I mean, I can give you guys kind of my setup if you want. So, so people can geek out over my setup. Um, so I, uh, I'll go through all that. Okay. So I play a Royale, a Loray Royale. Um, I use either the Chirugi 2 Plus, uh, silver staples or Nielsen Woodwinds artist staples also oh. in silver. If if you haven't tried those, they're amazing. I think they're incredible. Um, I feel like they're based off of Loray staples or Pisoni staples, something along those lines. They are amazing oh. and they make <laughs> incredible reads. Um, are they, the opening size is similar to the Chirugi 2 Plus? Yes. 
Mm -hmm. And they're thick walled. So I like thick walled staples. Um, and they're great. I love them. Um, I'm in a cane conundrum at the moment. I can't. Me too. If I, anything I like, I am, I'm in this place right now where I'm like, okay, well, there are so many people that gouge and shape cane. There must be someone that is making something that I like where I don't have to do that anymore. Yeah. I can pay someone to do that for me. Right. I don't need to do that. I don't have enough time to do that. Um, I would love to have some, if I was principalable of some major symphony, I would probably be a little bit more picky and be like, no, I'm going to pick everything myself and gouge it and shape it and want to, but it's just like, I just need reads. My students buy reads for me. I just need reads. I need them now. I don't want to have to fiddle with all the other stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, so I have been on the search this entire semester for sh- shaped gouged cane that I really feel like is um, giving me what I want. I just haven't, I've tried a lot. I just haven't found anything yet that I feel like it matches what I'm looking for. So I'm still on the uh, on the search. Anyone listening to this, tell me what you use if you buy shaped gouged cane and I will try it. Um, <laughs> I should start my own blog about gouged shaped cane. I'd read it. An article in the dur- journal catalog. I will buy all sorts of gouge-shaped cane from every purse possible and make a read on it. But yeah, I haven't really found anything yet. Um, but um, my it, when I am doing it myself, I tend to prefer Rigotti. I just buy Rigotti cane from whoever has it in, in stock at the moment. Um, and uh, here in Oklahoma, um, in the summer, I use... Um, like 11 diameter cane. Otherwise, mm-hmm. I find that my reeds are way too open. Mm-hmm. It's, it's too hot and humid. Um, and then in the winter, I use, like, I can use 10.5, 10.7. 10.75 is like my sweet spot in any. Oh, yeah. I love 10.75. It's oh, just, yeah. Just delicious. It makes mm-hmm. it nice. Mm. Mm. I'm having a good plate of lasagna. Um, mm-hmm. All right. Wow, that was really weird. Um, and <laughs> I um, I use Mac Pfeiffer is my go-to shape. I love it. It works really well on my instrument. Um, I used when I had an AK, a Lorraine uh, AK. I used to use a uh, Gilbert One. That was like my. It worked great. I found that uh, for me and just my setup, um, it's a little bit too wide on my mm-hmm. oboe. Mac Pfeiffer's the sweet spot. Um, uh, I actually have three different gougers and I use them for different kinds of playing. If I'm doing orchestra playing, I gouge on my graph machine. Mm-hmm. If I'm doing chamber music, I gouge on my Gilbert. And if I'm doing solo repertoire, I gouge on my inhaling. Hmm. I don't know. I'm not really sure. I just experimented and that's kind of what I came up with. It seems it was an unintentional experimentation. I had kind of played a whole bunch of concerts in like a six month period of time. And I saved the reads cause I wanted to see, and I marked all of my reads and my read log about where they were shaped on and all sorts of stuff. And <laughs> I realized that um, it, that's kind of what it came to any orchestra concert I played. It had been on a graph and mm-hmm. the same with chamber music and the same with solo rep. So I just kind of came to the conclusion that that's what I liked. And so now that's what I do. And it's, it's been successful so far. Um, 
My suggestions on remaking is don't let it control you. Mm. Um, I how? What? <laughs> I think uh, I controlled. She needs to be oh, re- released. Um, <laughs> I I I tell myself all the time: don't become as stubborn as your stubbornest read. And that to me basically just means that we all know that reads are a struggle for all of us. Um, but I love the term and I forgot who said it. I know some famous oboe player or someone said it like, don't let an inanimate object tell you what to do. John Mack. Is that John Mack? Mm-hmm. And I wholeheartedly believe that. Like, it doesn't have a brain. No. You're the one with a brain. That's hopefully true. Yeah. <laughs> yes, absolutely. <laughs> some days I don't feel like I have one, but. Exactly. You know, but um, really, I really do live by that saying. And I tell my students this all the time. Like, if you have a read that is being so stubborn that it doesn't want to do what you want it to do, don't become more stubborn and try to force it. Just get rid of it. Um, Make another one. Make another one. You know, Becky Henderson used to say, I think she said that that Richard Kilmer told her this. He said, like, the the best thing in his read box is a blank. Because... Mm -hmm means a new beginning like that is as if you have an unmade read that is like the most joyous thing in the world because that could be the best read that you make so if you have that really annoying read that's just being stubborn don't be stubborn too and say i'm gonna force this read to work it doesn't want to it doesn't like you just get rid (laughs) of the thing just not that into you just not that into you. And that's fine. Not every read needs to like you. It's fine. Get rid of it. Get it Therapy? out of your life. Therapy? Over. We are in. Welcome <laughs> to what a lesson is like with me. It is basically a musical therapy session. Um, it's okay. Throw it away and start a new one. It. I never let reads ruin your life. You know, I... I am wholeheartedly in this place right now of none of us are perfect. We need to stop with the perfection. We need to stop with the emphasis on perfection and we need to bring back the beauty of music. Um, It's so important that we make beautiful music that we love that audiences love. We forget about the audiences. They are paying to see you play because they love it. It's not about you. It's about the music. Mm-hmm. And you're, we are entertainers. We, our job is to go on stage and create something beautiful and emotional and, and interesting and exciting and evoke emotion. And who cares if your read is not doing everything you want it to? They don't know that. They are going to love you anyway mm-hmm. and play a note flat and let your read not speak on this for that one note, it's fine. Mm-hmm. It's okay. Just pick the read that seems to be functioning the best. You know, pick the read that plays the most in tune, that responds the best, that is giving you the most flexibility and dynamic range and allows you to be emotional when you play. If it's doing all those things, it probably will have a decent tone. Again, your audience probably has no idea what good tone on the oboe is anyway. And we feel it more than other people hear it. 
Yes, we 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 feel it because the vibrations are in our face. Like we mm-hmm. feel it in our sinuses. We know what good vibration feels like. And when you have a read that is maybe buzzing a little bit more or a little bit less than you normally would like, you feel it. And then you listen to a recording and you're like, oh, I still sound like me. Mm-hmm. You know, maybe I sound like a little bit more vibrant me or a little less vibrant me, but I still sound like me. Mm-hmm. Um, like, don't be stubborn. Just pick the read that feels the best, that's functioning the best and do some yoga and some deep breathing. Eat a snack. Eat a banana (laughs) and go on stage and have fun. Enjoy it. Show your audience how beautiful the music is and that they should enjoy it. And that's my read thing, you know, make reads that function. Don't let them control you. Don't be stubborn about having to make a read doesn't want to work, work. And just remember that there there's always tomorrow and another read that you can try making. And um, my other advice that I give to beginning read makers is find a system and learn that system. I don't even really care what system it is that you learn, but find find something, find a teacher that has a system and do it, do that, perfect that. Once you have perfected that, then go experiment. Mm -hmm. Don't experiment before you can make a read that functions properly because you're just going to get more confused. Um, So find a teacher, find a person that is going to teach you how to make reads in whatever style it is that they make, perfect it, then if you want to try something different, then go ahead and start experimenting with shapes and cane and gougers and all of that fun, but learn to make the read first. So you already gave us some amazing advice, but I love to end with this question. What advice do you have for a young musician who aspires to have a career like yours? Um, if I could talk to little me 20 years ago um, and other young musicians, um, I think what I would tell them is don't ever forget how much you love it. There are many different career paths that will allow you to be creative and in a career in music, especially these days. There are so many different ways to be involved in music. It doesn't mean that you need to be a performer. It doesn't mean that you um, need to be actively on stage. It might mean that you're backstage doing something or you're a recording engineer or you're a producer or you're a conductor or um, you're the CEO of a major symphony. There are so many different ways to bring joy and love of music and the arts um, to the world. Find the path that makes you the most happy, that allows you to be successful in whatever success means to you. Don't allow other people to define what success is, because that's different for each of us. And have fun in the process. Andrew Parker, this was the best. Thank you so much for lifting our spirits and joining us on Double Read Dish. We really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. It's been a joy talking to you. And I can't wait to see both of you again soon. My God, so soon. So soon. 
Well, we hope you enjoyed that episode and follow us on social media and tell us when you're scheduling your practice break. Maybe it's shorter than two weeks, longer. I don't know, but tell us. We're going to do this in solidarity together. Tell us how you're practicing self-care and setting up boundaries and rate and review. Galee, who's on the next episode? We welcome the amazing Lee Munoz, assistant professor of bassoon at the University of Missouri, Kansas City Conservatory. Jackie, let's end this nerd parade. Okay, I think I spilled juice on my desk because it's sticky. Ew. I'm going to go clean that up. (laughs) 